0: Thank you, Jim. I always love to hear Jim pray. I want him to come tuck me in at night. I think about that. (laughs) He's just got that voice. It's just the tucking in voice. Let me ask you a question. Why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? I know it's a pretty broad question, but I I think if you were to analyze the answer to that question, that you would answer it, for the most part, with the word habits, routines. Like uh, myself, I try to have habits that are positive, because once you start doing them, you, you know, you're sort of stuck with them until you break them. And boy, breaking habits is a hard thing to do. So might as well establish good ones. Like in the morning, my uh, alarm clock wakes me up. It's actually my watch. My watch will shake while I'm there in bed. Sometimes I'll wake up and it's shaking me. And so and I've got the same routine. I get up and I'll walk over to the coffee pot. It's already on because of a timer. And then, you know, it's one of those Keurig things, so I pop the Keurig thing and it's it's got about fifteen seconds and for it to work up the steam to start dropping the coffee and that gives me enough time to walk over to the fridge and get out the creamer to put in the cup. And then I, I take the cup and I put it there under the coffee thing. You know, probably within two, three seconds of time, coffee starts. It's very efficient, you know, from enough time for me to shuffle, get it all done. While the coffee's dripping, I'll walk over and drink a full glass of water. I mean, seriously, this is like every morning, for years, this is how it works. Same time, no matter whether it's Sunday or Monday or Thursday, same thing. Because it just is helpful to get habits going that, that are in the direction that you want to do. Now, it's one thing to walk around the house in the dark with, uh, with habits, but it's another thing when you realize that this is how we live most of our lives. If you don't think you have habits, just ask somebody that knows you well, like a spouse, if you have a spouse, or a sibling, or a parent, or a child. They'll tell you, "Oh yeah, you you've got habits." For example, did you know that you cough like a chicken every time you do such and so? Had no idea. I coughed like a chicken, but evidently chickens do cough, because that <laughs> that's that's what you're told. Um, Well, the same is also true in our spiritual lives. We have habits that we exhibit around other people, but we also have habits in our walk with God. The habits that the human race formed early on were pretty deeply embedded within us, and that is as soon as we do something wrong, our index finger sticks out, and we point at somebody else, anybody else, as the problem. Of course, uh Eve, Adam pointed to Eve and Eve pointed to the serpent and the serpent well, you know, who's Satan going to point to. So the book kind of stopped there. But that we we habitually live in the in the spiritual life with routines and habits, whether they're good or bad. Well, let's turn together to the book of Zechariah and we're going to answer the question, why do you do what you do? And habits as certainly a very practical thing but there is a higher reason that we want to superimpose over our habits and perhaps even change our habits Zechariah it's the second to last book of the old testament and because we've already taken a glimpse at Malachi back uh, some time ago then this is our last book of the old testament as we've worked our way through the entire Old Testament taking just a single message from each book of the Bible. So we'll continue plowing on through the New Testament, 27 more to go. But And it's sort of a shame, in a way, to get to the end of uh, this great section of the Bible because this is a section of the Bible that we hardly are ever in. In fact, I can look at some of you looking around like, Zachariah, where's Zechariah? Second to last book of the, of the Old Testament you You can find Matthew and just go back two books, and there's there's Zechariah. But it's sort of a shame to leave it because it's uh, it's nice to be in unfamiliar territory and to hear something fresh. Once we get into the New Testament, you, you don't want to say it's all downhill, but it's so familiar that it's extra work to really hear it for fresh as for the first time. Zechariah is one of those books. The last of the last three books in the Old Testament are the books that focus on, the return after the exile, and the Bible. If you think about it, especially the Old Testament, can be a pretty intimidating book. It can be a confusing book because it's not strictly chronological. You've got poetry that that's here, and you've got prophets that are here, and yet some somehow the poetry and the prophets all fit back into the historical section. And you're not real exactly sure which, what goes where, and it's just this these books that you read and. It, unless you understand where everything fits together, it can be really confusing. So, can we do the Old Testament in just like five minutes? Well, I bet we could. Let's give it a shot. The, um, when God creates, created the world, He created it good, He created it with blessing, but sin marred God's program. Or you could say, you when know, it entered God's program, it marred God's blessing. And, of course, the finger-pointing started with Adam and Eve blaming one another, and then that has continued on with the murder of, of uh, Abel, Cain killing Abel, and the global flood. I mean, it, it, it only got worse and worse until finally God says, "I'm through one man, through Abraham, I am going to restore the blessing. God created it, started with blessing, Sin marred that, God said, through Abraham, I am going to restore that blessing. In fact, God made a promise to Abraham, and he he promised Abraham three things. He promised him land, he promised him descendants, and he promised him blessing. The land is where the descendants would live, the promised land, and the blessing would come through the descendants to all the nations. And so, once again, God's plan was for the whole world, not just for Israel, but but rather through Israel, all the nations would be blessed. Well, they uh, were enslaved in Egypt for four centuries. By God's powerful hand, He moved the heart of a pagan king, Pharaoh, to release the uh, the Hebrews, and God, with a powerful hand, brought them into the Promised Land, the very land that He promised to Abraham. So God is making good on his promise and he has multiplied Abraham's descendants. He's making good on his promise. And so the next thing to do is to bring the blessing into the picture and ultimately through the, uh, through the plan of God that would happen through Jesus Christ. But in the Old Testament, they're now in the land and God says, look, the way that you're going to live in the land is through obedience. In fact, I've rigged it I've, I've made this land that it doesn't rain if you don't obey me. And rain's the only way you get water. And you need water. And so with obedience came blessing and rain. And with disobedience, the sky shut up the water. And all of a sudden, they got time to think about their walk with God. And that happened over and over in the Old Testament until ultimately the sin of the nation, God said, that's it. I'm going to take you out of the Promised Land, because you only get to live in the land if you're obedient. So God took him out of the land. And then God decided, okay, now through their repentance, I'm going to bring you back into the land. And that's where we find ourselves here in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah was a contemporary with the book just prior, which we looked at last time around, Haggai. Haggai and Zechariah were contemporaries and we talked about the fact that there were three different returns to the land do you remember those three returns the first return was under who Ezra and he rebuilt the people second return was under begins with a z Zerubbabel and he rebuilt the temple third was under Nehemiah we all know he rebuilt the wall so three returns three purposes Zechariah came right alongside Haggai with the, with the emphasis with Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. So, was that five minutes? All of that right here into the book of Zechariah. So let's look right in chapter 1 verse 1 and we've got several different places in this great book we're going to look. It's a long book for a minor prophet, 14 chapters. Verse 1 says, In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Idu, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Return. Uh, I'm sorry. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. So here they are back in the land, and God says, by the way, it's still the same system. If you obey, I'll bless you. If you disobey, I won't. God's saying there has to be repentance for there to be restoration. So return to me and I'll return to you. You want my blessing? Return to me. It's like what James says in the book of James, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. What's that old song? Darling, if you want me to be closer to you, get closer to me. Maybe that's not a great illustration, but it's sort of the same idea. Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you. You know, the funny thing about that song is I don't remember any other words. It's just that. So that sort of sets the stage. We find that the the people of God are pretty much the same as before God took them out of the land. He brought them back into the land, and they're still the same people. God challenges them, return to me, that I may return to you. God wants to bless them, but he won't bless them if they're not seeking him. So that sets the stage. Turn a few chapters further and look at chapter 7. Zechariah 7. Two years have passed since chapter 1, and the temple is about halfway built. So they have followed God's leading, and they have been working on the temple. A couple of years have passed, and now we find ourselves here in chapter 7, verse 1. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the town of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Rigamigalik, long name, Melech, and their men to seek the favor of the Lord, speaking to the priests who belonged to the house of the Lord of Hosts and to the prophets, saying, here's their question, shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these many years? That seems like a really random, irrelevant question, mainly because the historical context is sort of hidden from us. Uh, there's a date mentioned here, it's the fourth day of the ninth month. This was December in the year 518 BC. This a delegation from the town of Bethel, just north of Jerusalem, uh, was sent down to Jerusalem and they asked a simple question. Uh, was it necessary to fast, or to keep on fasting, in the fifth month? So what was that about? What was that fast about? A lot of times, our holidays are known by dates. Like, all we have to say is July 4th, and we immediately connect with what that date means. In Mexico, you say Cinco de Mayo, and immediately they know the 5th of May means whatever it means to them. Well, in Israel, or in the Hebrew history, the ninth of Av, or the ninth of, the, of this particular uh, month, the fifth month, was called Av, AV. And the ninth is Tisha, so Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av. Tisha B'Av, even today, is a holiday in Israel that represents the ninth of the month of Av. And what was significant on that day is that's the day that Solomon's temple was destroyed. So what they're asking is, Look, these 70 years in exile on Teshaba'av, we have always fasted because the temple's been destroyed. We're now back on the land. The temple is halfway built. Should we keep fasting for a temple that was destroyed, that now it's no longer destroyed, we're rebuilding it? Totally logical question. Should we continue to fast? Well, look at the answer here in verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seven months these 70 years, was it actually for me that you fasted? When you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves? And do you not drink for yourselves? The fast in the fifth month we just talked about, that's on Tisha and they mentioned this uh, also, the, the seventh month, which is a lesser, uh, a lesser holiday, they also commemorated the assassination of one of their Jewish governors. But God's answer, he notes, he says, God didn't require either of these fasts, uh, they, were, they were voluntary. The only required fast that God ever gave Israel was on Yom Kippur, it was just once a year on the Day of Atonement. That's the only time that they had to fast. Anything else was totally voluntary. There was no reason that they had to do it. It was a self-imposed fast. I, um, there was a church, there was a small-town church up in upstate New York, I read about, this is a true story, that had a priest, so it was a, a church that had priests, for um, about 35 years. This priest served there in this particular parish. And after he retired, he was replaced by a young priest. And the young priest had been there for you know some weeks when he began to pick up on the fact that the people were sort of frustrated with him. And he didn't know why. And so he asked somebody, one of the lay leaders of the church, and says, I just kind of have a feeling something's wrong. Why are the people frustrated with me? They say, well, you know, when you serve communion, you don't go over and touch the radiator. He goes, touch the radiator? I had no idea that was part of the tradition around here. So he called the former priest and said, what's this business about touching the radiator during, during communion? Because the people are frustrated with me, with me that I'm not doing it. And the priest said, oh, really? Well, he said, I used to always just go over and touch the radiator to discharge the static electricity from my hand so that when I served communion to them, I didn't shock them. The congregation didn't know that. They thought that the holy radiator was something, some part of, the, part of the tradition. And when the new priest didn't go over and touch the radiator, something's wrong in the house of God. It was a self-imposed ritual. For the priest, it was just a matter of being practical. He was trying to be nice and not shock the people. But for the people, it was a part of their holy worship experience as crazy as that sounds from our perspective. But if you think about it, we've got crazy things like that too, don't we? Just go to some other traditional church or some other church with traditions that does things different, and all of a sudden you're going, this can't be of God. This is so different. And and if you really want to uh, test out your spirituality, go on a mission trip or something and where you'll like see what Christians do on the other side of the world, That's, uh, that'll really test your spirituality. I grew up in a tradition where the basic thought was that you came to church Sunday morning, you love the church. If you came to church Sunday evening, you love the pastor. If you came to church Wednesday evening, you love the Lord. I mean, there, were, there was varsity and junior varsity in the spiritual life, even in church. You know, for some reason, we think God is more pleased with us if we pray on our knees. Some believe that one translation is a better translation or a more accepted-by-God translation than others. After all, if the King James was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for us. And uh, don't even think of coming to church without a tie or a dress on. Right? These are the old days. And yet nowhere does it say any of that in the Bible. Think about some of the self-imposed traditions we have. Closing our eyes when we pray. Where is that in the Bible? It's not there. Bowing our heads when we pray. Not there. Men, taking your hats off when we pray. It's not there. It's all part of our tradition and yet if you don't do it you feel funny, don't you? You don't I mean, if somebody sees you with your eyes open, you feel funny in prayer. Nobody sees you, it's okay, right? I love it when you're at, some, you're at some service, and the pastor or whoever it is you know, says, every head bowed and every eye closed. Like, that's what's supposed to happen. Sometimes, boy, if they tell me that, I just get a little rebellious streak in me, and I'll just, I'll just look right at him. And, and sometimes you just want to say, why do you do what you do? Where, where is that in the Bible? Well, traditions are helpful. I'm not down on traditions. I bow my head. I close my eyes, even when I'm by myself, because that is tradition. That's just what we do. And yet the thing is, we have to be careful about taking tradition and putting it on par with Scripture. The Pharisees did that. Remember, the Pharisees got on to Jesus asking them, why don't your disciples wash their hands like we do? And Jesus basically says, well, why do you ignore the Bible for the sake of your tradition? Tradition is not on the same level as, as Scripture. So when God asked these people here in, in Zechariah's day, when you fasted, was it actually for me that you fasted? Notice that question he, he says, he asked there in verse 5. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, these 70 years, was it actually for me that you did it? And then verse 6, from fasting to feasting, he says, When you eat and drink at your feasts, don't you do it for yourselves? Don't you eat for yourselves, and do you not drink for yourselves? The primary motive for them in their spiritual activities was self. It wasn't God. So here's a principle, and it's really the only principle that we're going to see throughout the text today that we'll land on, and by way of application, and it's this. Our primary motive for our spiritual activities is God's glory. Our primary motive for our spiritual activities is God's glory. And in a sense, you could even take the word spiritual out of that. I mean, all activities should be spiritual in our mindset, but our primary motive for our activities, spiritual or not, is God's glory. So the question, why do you do what you do? God's glory is the answer. Whether it's a simple habit, like getting coffee ready to go read the Bible, or whether it's coming and worshiping, or even bowing our head and closing our eyes, in our tradition, which isn't biblical, but we can apply the tradition toward a biblical motive of reverence. Our our spiritual activity, the purpose of it, is God's glory. It's not us. And that's the great temptation. It was for them in, the, in Zechariah's day because they did it for themselves. They fasted for themselves. They ate and drank for themselves, whether it was fasting or whether it was feasting. It wasn't for God's glory. It was for themselves. And we can do the same thing. I like what Paul writes to the Corinthians. He says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. It's so easy sometimes to just leave God out of the picture of our spiritual life and Woo! sometimes this uh, gets under my skin when I'm at some, you know, service or some concert or something that's, uh, you know, a Christian gathering. And we will be 30 plus minutes into the service before God's even brought into the picture. We'll talk about announcements. We'll talk about music. We'll talk about the performers. We'll talk about Bach and Beethoven. But where's Jesus in the picture? Sometimes we don't hear about Jesus until the Bible is actually opened and his name is read. But from moment one, when we come into the house of God, our primary purpose and motive is God's glory. We are here for him. We're not here for us. We are here for him. The Pharisees of Jesus' day made tradition more important than God's word. We are when we come to church, we are worshipers we are not consumers. when we come to church we're worshipers we're not consumers. When we carry a consumer mentality here with us in church we um, we sort of have the the mindset of the Pharisee you know I don't like this style of music, so I'm not going to participate uh, that's a tradition, and that's not um, that's not of God. and That's hard. Boy, that's tough. We are worshipers, not consumers. Jesus said to the religious people of his day, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away. So again, our primary motive for our spiritual activities is God's glory. You know, just a helpful, helpful thing to do as you're going through, if you can break into your routine that is so set and hardwired into your into your day. And just ask yourself, why am I doing this? What's my motive for doing this? And whatever the motive is, just reframe it to be God's glory. Just even if nobody knows but you and the Lord, the Lord knows. And that's enough. He's the He's the only one that matters. Let's look at some other verses here in Zechariah, a sort of a hopscotch fashion. So get your your nimble Baptist Bible drill fingers working here and let's see if we can get uh, look at some of these other verses that are wonderfully pointing to our Lord Jesus. Now, we're in chapter 7. Look back a few verses into chapter 6 and verse 12. Zechariah 6, 12. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices." Now, the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. Those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. Zechariah looks to the future when a person named Branch. And in my Bible, it's a capital B, and the pronouns that follow this branch are all capital H and him. So we're talking about the Messiah. We're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we know as the branch. And he's called the branch other places as well. But here he's referred to as the branch who will branch out, and it says that he will build the temple of the Lord, and he will sit, verse 13, and rule on his throne, on the throne of God. So this can be nothing else but the Messiah. But notice in verse 15, the very last sentence, it will only take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. Again, to live in the land, to live in under God's blessing, there has to be repentance. Remember when Jesus came on the scene, what was his primary message? The same message as as John the Baptist, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This very kingdom. To sit on the throne of God is a, a prophecy of the kingdom of God. And when Jesus came on the scene, that is the very message he had. He said, repent, because we don't just live in the land for nothing. We live in the land because Israel repents. And so Jesus and John called them to repent so that the Messiah could rule and we're, we're told here in verse 15, it's only going to happen if you completely obey. It is contingent on Israel repenting. And of course, we know that ultimately, at the time of Christ, they did not do that. Look at chapter 8, verse 19. Chapter 8, verse 19. This is ultimately the answer when that delegation from Bethel asked, should we continue fasting on Tisha Av or not? Verse 19, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth months will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. So love truth and peace. Remember, Teshabaav, or this fast for the destruction of the temple, was a fast of mourning. And Zechariah is saying, or the Lord is saying here, These fasts in the kingdom are going to be turned on their head and they're going to be times of joy. These very days that were times of mourning are going to be times of joy when the Messiah comes. Great hope. Look at chapter 9, verse 9. Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold... Your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, meaning the Euphrates River. This is the bounds of the promised land. Zechariah nine. does that look familiar? You've got your king coming to you on a donkey? Absolutely that looks familiar. Think about every Easter or Passion Week, we, talk, we read this passage either in Matthew or John, and it points specifically to this fulfillment. In fact, keep your finger here in Zechariah and turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19. Luke 19, Jesus tells a parable intended to clarify that the kingdom of God is not going to come right away. He tells the parable, he says, very specifically Luke says, because they thought the kingdom was going to come right away. In other words, Jesus is saying it isn't. It's going to be delayed. There's going to be a delay in the promises of God. Then uh, we won't read the passage here where Jesus directs his disciples to go and get the colt that he's going to ride on in fulfillment of Zechariah but let's read what happens as he's on the colt now and he is on his way into Jerusalem Luke 19 start in verse 41 down in verse 41 Luke 19:41 When he approached Jerusalem he saw the city and wept over it saying if you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace but now they have been hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you because uh, your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation Zechariah 9, 9 clearly said, your king is going to come to you on a donkey. And Jesus said in verse 42, if you had known in this day, I think we've talked about it before, but jot across reference down for this day to, to Daniel 9, verse 24 and following, where Daniel chapter 9 gives the exact time that Messiah is going to appear. And so if they had paid attention to that they would have had banners across the wall of Jerusalem saying "Welcome Messiah" as Jesus rode over the the hill but they didn't recognize it Jesus said they didn't and uh, if we were to keep reading uh this this context just before the verses verse 41 you'll see that as Jesus was walking or riding down the descent of the Mount of Olives verse 37 the crowd is praising God, and then the Pharisees, verse 39, say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, Israel is not going to have this man as the Messiah. They're not going to repent. And so Jesus cries and basically says, You got that right. It ain't happening now. It's going to happen later. What's going to happen now is that beautiful temple is going to be destroyed. And uh, some 37 years later, that actually happened in A.D. 70. And here's, here's the amazing thing. Guess what day the second temple was destroyed? Tisha Ba'av. The exact same time as the first temple was destroyed. And so when the Jews mourn the destruction of the temple, it happened on the same day for the first temple as it did on the second temple. Uh, The Second Temple's destruction on to Shabbat. Some say coincidence, some say providence, but it happened hundreds of years apart on the same day. Now turn back to Zechariah chapter nine, and let's read those two verses again. Well, we read read chapter uh, nine, verse nine about the donkey. Now look at verse ten. Let's read that one again. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Here you have verse nine about this humble Messiah coming on a donkey. And then you have verse 10 right beside it about him stopping war and speaking peace to the nations and and having dominion over the whole earth. We have here in Zechariah, as we do in most of the prophets, a blending of the first and second coming of Jesus, because from their perspective, potentially, if Israel had repented, it would have just been one coming. There would be no need for two, sec- two comings. But um, the Old Testament allows for two comings in the interpretation, because the Lord God knew very well that uh, there would be a huge separation. The Apostle Paul calls it a mystery The age of the church is a mystery. In the Old Testament it was hidden, but it's revealed uh, in our in our day. Okay, so turn a little further. Let's keep looking. Zechariah is rich with messianic promises. Zechariah twelve. Zechariah twelve, verse nine. Now we're sort of into the second coming parts of Zechariah's promises. Zechariah twelve verse nine. And in that day I will set about to destroy all nations that come against Jerusalem, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that here's the purpose they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Here, Zechariah prophesies that at the Messiah's coming, we know to be the second coming, that we're told that God will pour out a spirit of grace on Israel so that, verse 10, they will look on Jesus, whom they have pierced, and they will mourn. They will repent. They will accept him as the Messiah that he is, that he presented himself to be, the first time around. But at the second coming of Christ, finally, Israel as a nation is going to look on the one whom they have pierced and is going to uh, mourn, weep bitterly, realizing what they have done, and they will repent. And then when they repent, what happens when Israel repents? The kingdom comes. The restoration comes. Look at chapter 13, just a couple of verses after this, verse 1. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. Once Israel realizes that Jesus is their Messiah, now their sins are forgiven. The new covenant is ultimately fulfilled. That is, that, the, that Jesus is going to be the one who provides forgiveness of sins to Israel. Here we have in Zechariah 13, verse 1, a prophecy that that's going to happen when Jesus comes the second time. Let's keep going. Chapter 14, look at verse 4. Oh, I love this. I love this part. Chapter 14, verse 4. In that day, still second coming, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle, From east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the valley, half of the mountain will move toward the north, and the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. You know, the best place to read this is on the Mount of Olives. To stand on the Mount of Olives with Jerusalem, you know, right behind you or right in front of you, and to picture it because the geography fits. You know, it talks about Mount of Olives splitting its middle from east to west, and just it's all right there, and it's sort of eerie when you realize that the mountain you're standing on is going to divide, and uh, and the Lord is going to come. We're told here in verse five, and all the holy ones with Him. The holy ones that are with Him, you know who that is. That's us, absolutely. And how do we know that? Well, we're not just making it up, but in, uh, in Revelation 19 and 20, it talks about the second coming of Christ, that those who come with Christ on white horses are uh, the bride, the church of God. And then, of course, verse 9 is a wonderful conclusion to this uh, promise. And the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day. The Lord will be the only one in his name, the only one. This is the kingdom of God beginning and the Lord Jesus reigning for 1,000 years on this earth. And I love the way Isaiah puts it. In fact, I thought about that a lot this week. And the government will be on his shoulders. Think about that. President Jesus. And not just president over this particular nation, but over the world, the whole world, our benevolent dictator ruling for a thousand years over this very earth, and by his grace we will play some role in that, in in, uh, in helping him to, uh, to reign on the, on the earth. Well, these marvelous prophecies were given to Israel as they got back into the land. Remember, this is all Zechariah. This is all the Hebrews coming back into the land. Messiah hasn't come yet. They're looking forward to it. This is all what they have to look forward to. We look at much of this in hindsight, though some of it's still to come, but to them it was all future. And the purpose of sharing this with them was to motivate them to repent so that God would bring the blessing and would bring the restoration that He longed to give them. Now, we aren't Israel. And we don't have these particular specific promises that we can claim, but we are looking for the coming of the Lord, aren't we? In fact, the second coming is not just an event, it's more of a, of a um, you can almost say a series of events that begins with the rapture and ends with you know, Jesus actually coming to reign in the kingdom. So when don't confuse the second coming of Jesus to earth with the rapture. It's two separate events though they're sort of termed theologically as as one. But the rapture is what we're looking for and that could happen today. I mean, that could happen before lunch. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't even have to worry about what to order. It's a great it's a great hope. But when asked remember when asked why if if they should fast lord should we continue to fast god basically came back with them and said tell me why you're fasting again because i know it isn't for me it's for you so in in a sense you decide because it's all about you but that causes us to back up and with a principle once again to, to, to ask and answer why do you do what you do the answer, our primary motive for our spiritual activities is God's glory. That's why we do what we do. Looking ahead, the beautiful hope of Christ coming is a motivation for us, just like it was a motivation in Zechariah's day. Looking forward to the glorious reign of God on earth is a motivation for us to make all of our activities for God's glory. Let's pray. Our Father, the words of the psalmist come to mind, the prayer of the psalmist. Let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God. When we think about our motives and why we do what we do, so much of it can be summed up in habit and in ritual. And sometimes even our religious activities here in church and elsewhere are just ritual. And we don't give thought to why we bow our head or why we close our eyes or why we read our Bible or why we do so many of the other things we do. Lord, would you shake us out of our routine? Give us an awareness, as you did with the questioners here in Zechariah's day, that we don't just do these things because... Um, it makes us look spiritual, or it substitutes for a relationship with you. Remind us that all that we do, that all of our motives should be for your glory. And as we do that, we look forward to the wonderful and glorious reign of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, who came, who died on the cross to pay for our sins, who rose again on the third day, proving that our sins are forgiven, who ascended from the Mount of Olives with the promise that he would return again. And as Zechariah tells us, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives when he comes. What a glorious future we have to look forward to. So, Father, as we wait for our Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us the grace to evaluate motives and where needed to realign them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.